9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and we are joined today by three of our friends in California. We have Corey Shockey, just back from a 30 or 40 mile run, her usual uh, daily activity out there. How are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well, David. See, she's exceedingly well. That's if everybody ran 30 miles a day, they would be as well. Tom Nichols, one of our friends, a professor and prolific writer, um, uh, you probably ran 30 miles today as well, correct? Yeah. Uh, by putting my car on the blocks and stepping on the accelerator, it's about as close as I'll get to that. But um, I admire Corey's discipline. Corey is an inspiration to us all, particularly Ed Luce, who otherwise would be <laughs> extremely lazy and uh, lying there, <laughs> having you know gin and tonic and British British summer afternoon. How are you, Ed? I'm doing well. I skipped my pre-breakfast GNT for for a, a half marathon this morning, but other than that, the routine's the same. <laughs> America is punchy, you know, it's August, you know, it's supposed to be the dog days of summer. And yet we have a COVID epidemic that is spreading more and more rapidly every day, despite the fact the president says it's not. We have an economic crisis that's just been made dramatically worse by the fact that the Congress has decided not to do anything for the 30 million people who have uh, become unemployed by it. Um, the world's a mess, and none of us can get out out of doors. So I think you know it's understandable that everybody here is a little bit punchy. I thought I'd start out by sort of flipping the narrative, you know, per the old Hollywood joke, you know, that goes enough about me. What did you think of my last movie? Um, and it, you know, and sort of flip it to well, enough about. You know, what do we think about the insanity in the United States? What does the rest of the world think about the insanity in the United States right now? Um, it's one of the topics to which we return periodically. And uh, uh, Tom, since you are our guest, but you are also an expert um, in things uh, Russian um, and the old Soviet Union, what, what does that part of the world think of all of this? Are they proud of themselves for having conjured this up? I mean... Uh, it, it, are they worried about their own their own problems and and Putin's reelection and big demonstrations that are going out in on in Siberia? What's what's front of their mind? Well, if you watch the Russian media, they're having the time of their lives. They think this is hilarious. They once again are referring to Putin, uh, excuse me, to Trump as theirs that they own him. Um, they, of course, you know, Russian media is going to do what Russian media does. I mean, it's like Russian media is like tabloid media come to life on steroids all day. Um, but, you know, they're enjoying it. I mean, this is the United States brought low. It's brought down to their level. Um, they're having a tremendous crisis with the pandemic that nobody wants to talk about because Putin won't let them. And because when they do, they throw doctors out of windows. Um, but the, uh, I think they are amazed at 
uh, how incompetent the Americans are, because one of the things that's always been burned into the Soviet and later Russian psyche is that when it comes to technology, Americans are magic, that they can pull rabbits out of their hat. You know, we can land on the moon, we do the space shuttle, we do all this stuff. And I think that there are a lot of Russians kind of nodding and saying, see, they're human after all. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're nincompoops just like everybody else in the world. And I, and I think they're enjoying it on a more serious level. I, I am really concerned that they are looking carefully as we do to them, that they're looking carefully at our personnel and staffing and seeing that our entire national security bureaucracy and defense organizations are either, you know, the two most common last names are either vacant or acting. Um, and I, and I'm really concerned about that because I think they see opportunities. Um, and uh, you know, we're, we're just not staffed up. We're not ready to go. Well, actually, many of the people who are actually in the jobs are pretty vacant also. So we end up we, 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 we end up with double sets of problems. And I want to circle back to that a little bit later. But first, let's continue with our tour around the world. You know, Corey, you broke all of America's heart a while back by going off to England. And uh, we, we, you know, the country's decline can be traced almost uh, to the day that you left. And uh, but you made a lot of friends over there. And as I read about Europe this past week, you know, you've got, you know, Macron saying, you know, we have to learn how to uh, anticipate an America that's no longer with us. Um, the the U.S.-German relationship is at its absolute post-war nadir. Um, what, what do you think they think of all of this? So I agree with Tom's judgment and um, that both friends and adversaries are shocked at the, the spectacle of an America this dysfunctional, this incapable of solving its own problems, this willing to sacrifice 160,000 of its citizens on the altar of incompetence. Um, Ed Luce's newspaper had an interesting article uh, by the Indian novelist Arundhati Roy, who said, good God, this is America? Because, right, American power in the international order has never been uh, solely or even principally about our military strength. It's been about the attractiveness of our ideal, of our go-go economy, of our creative civil society, of our scientific prowess. And none of those things are in evidence at the moment. And watching angry Americans cough in each other's faces or refuse to wear masks is actually uh, genuinely scary to people whose security relies on the good judgment and sensibility of American decision makers underwritten by the American public. So, so yeah, I think it's a really scary time for America's friends. And uh, while I would, um, I wouldn't put too much stock in President Macron's questioning of a post-American world because uh, I recall previous French presidents seeking to bend Europe to France's interest on exactly that argument for the last 75 years or so. 
Um, but uh, he's not wrong. It's going to take some consistent, sensible American foreign and defense policy before we can regain the confidence of countries whose very existence as free nations relies on that sensibility. Yeah. Yeah, no question no question about it. I've written a couple of op-eds in the past week or so, and one of the ones uh, I was asked to write was about just this issue of American myths about ourselves coming into question, and, and I suggested that questioning myths was a good, healthy sign of progress. But you know, Ed, Rush Limbaugh attacked me for my op- – I mean, he did say, I have no idea. Thank you. He said, I have no idea who David Rothkoff is, um, which, you know, makes him, you know, helps him connect to millions of Americans. Um, But I I felt it was a real achievement to have alienated him. Um, Ed, you know, I could turn to you about UK. I could turn to you about India. I could turn to you about China. What what about the other parts of the world? What what about, uh, you know, I mean, do do you sort of uh, accept uh, the analysis here of of Tom and and Corey. I broadly agree with 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 Tom Tom and Corey, but um, let me just first say that you know Rush Limbaugh is not just some radio talk show guy. He's he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, mm. So you know when he calls <laughs> when he calls you out, uh, David. You know this is the great and the good. This is the best and the brightest. This is the establishment attacking you. I feel good. I feel good. Uh, I feel um, young. I feel fresh. If I'm taken on the establishment, that's where I'm supposed to be. Absolutely. Um, the You could really pick any part of the world, but I mean, clear, the, there are sort of, I would broadly divide them into two camps. There's the part of the world that is laughing and there's the part of the world that's leaping, uh, that, that's weeping. And I think that the uh, the weeping out, out outnumbers the laughter. Um, but China is having a very good propagandistic pandemic. Um, there's no doubt about it that the the pantomime that uh, is going on in the United States, and it's, it is worth repeating, a president who talks about drinking disinfectant, um, ingesting disinfectant, um, continues to um, sort of search for ridiculous magic bullets, who retweets QAnon, which is you know, the today's version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in terms of its conspiratorial, horrific conspiratorial worldview is is a, a, a cause of extraordinary schadenfreude in China. And they are making hay with this. This is, this is what the world's greatest democracy has got as its leader. And so I think, you know, first and foremost, this is a terrible, terrible brand hit to the United States. Um... That, that China is exploiting. Uh, it could, of course, it could, of course, be reversed, at least partially, quite quickly with a new administration under Biden. Um, you know, the, the bar for him to succeed is pretty low. He just needs to turn up at a couple of G7 summits and eat with his mouth closed and not throw cutlery at people. And, um, you know, Biden will be, will be um, applauded as a, a restoration of civil uh, and global-minded alliance-minded and uh, American leadership. Um, the damage of the coronavirus, I think, um, under Trump has been worse than the 
previous three and a quarter years of his administration. You know, January the 8th was the last Pew um, survey of global opinions towards the United States. And in the countries where you'd expect America to have hit rock, rock bottom, it has hit rock bottom. Um, it had hit rock bottom before coronavirus struck uh, um, Germany, Britain, France, Canada, places like that. In the countries where you would expect um, the United States to be slightly more popular, namely India, even under Trump, um, uh, it, it, had, it had fallen pretty steeply as well. Um, the coronavirus on top of this um, is, is, I think, devastating. Um, and as I say, it's a mixture of pity and schadenfreude. Well, let me throw a curveball in here that you're just not going to get on MSNBC, guys. I'm just, I'm warning you. Um, and that is, let's discuss whether Joe Biden, were he to become president, could actually fix that much. Um, yes, I mean, he can not be Trump. You know, yay, he's not Trump. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Obama administration and <laughs> there, exactly. And Corey's laugh says everything I was about to say. I mean, you know, they, the Obama administration um, let the Russians sort of walk over them in the Crimea, let the Russians walk over them in Syria, had a terrible policy in Syria. Yes, there was Iraq. Yes, there was TPP. Yes, there was the Paris Accord. But, you know, but by the way, the U.S. lagged on the Paris Accord. The Paris Accord wasn't a particularly strong deal. The U.S. lagged on TPP. Um, TPP did not in involve China, was not a particularly strong um, deal. The, the Iran Accord was a good thing in the context of the range of possibilities, but it was not a particularly strong accord, and it was going to come undone. And there were a lot of people in the world back then who thought, you know, the United States is declining under this guy that we now look back on uh, as, a, as a near saint. Obviously, during the Bush administration, we had the invasion of Iraq, which was a catastrophe on multiple levels. Uh, and there was a lot of anti-American thinking since then. And I think one could fairly argue that for the entire 21st century, the U.S. has been fumbling and in decline. And I'm not going to go back into the Clinton administration and you know, Rwanda, the Central African Republic, fumbling our way through the war in the former Yugoslavia and, and, and not reinventing NATO and falling for the romance of, you know, Russian reform because we wanted it to be that way. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's going to feel good for the first month or two of Joe Biden, but Tom, don't you think people are going to come back in and test this theory with a real vengeance? Well, let me, um, take the contrarian contrarian view here and say, I've been living with narratives of American decline, you know, most of my life. Um, and they never come true. And it's like political hypochondria, you know, this time we're really, but I'm going to say this time, the damage from Trump is, is that serious and maybe Biden can fix it. You know, the, the issues you raised, David, are issues where we could argue about whether they're bad policy. I mean, I, you know, I was a, pretty 
consistent critic of the Obama administration. I didn't like the Iran deal. I didn't like a lot of the way we were mortgaging foreign policy to the Russians and outsourcing our security in the Middle East. But that's just bad policy. That is not a fundamental failure of America. Um, and we've lived through this. I mean, I, you know, I turned, my first election was Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan, where at the end of the 70s, when I started college, people, you know, my professors were telling me, well, the Soviet model is probably going to dominate us and the American model is over and the American century is done and all that. Um, I think what's different is our, our allies are used to bad policy or policies they don't like. They're not used to seeing us lose our minds. And I think the thing that I worry that Biden can't recover from is even if we get back to where we were as a competent, viewed as a sort of competent, you know, leader uh, uh, in the international community, we've proven for the first time in our history, I, I would argue the first time in modern history, we've proven that we're capable of this. This is sort of like the first time some, you know, your, your, your significant other hits you, right? I mean, it, it, you can't. You can't forget it. It becomes part of the relationship that no matter how much repair we do, uh, two or three generations of allies around the world can look back and say, America's back. You guys are doing fine. But, you know, we'll never forget that you are you were capable of completely having a nervous breakdown and losing your minds. Now, if Trump is reelected, I, I don't even want to say this, right? If Trump is reelected, none of that ever comes back. That is really kind of the end of America as a global power, I think. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the best hope at this point is to, is when Biden's elected to say, look, it was a fluky outcome. It was one of those weird electoral college you know, strange moments. It was a unique confluence, a perfect storm. Um, but nonetheless, for the first time since the end of World War II, the Americans have shown that they are really capable of completely taking a powder on global leadership and becoming dangerous in a way that other countries had not thought of us as dangerous because we are incompetent and childlike. And I think that that is the thing that I worry about the most that Biden can't fix. But I don't buy into Trump is just another story in the big, you know, pageant of American decline because I've I've heard that story so many times before already, and I, I think that's that's overly pessimistic. Trump is a qualitatively different kind of problem. Well, it reminds me of you know your former uh, uh, Russia studies colleague Marshall Goldman, who for a long time said Russia will fall, and it never did, but finally it did. Right. Um, well, all you uh, had to do was predict it every six months, and eventually you were going to be right. Well, ex ex exactly. By the way, that was my first election, also uh, 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 the Jimmy Carter Ronald Reagan election, and I demonstrated from the get go my political acuity with a vote for John Anderson. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we shouldn't laugh. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> we you should, should be kinder than that. Yeah, you should laugh, Corey. What do you think of that? So I disagree a little bit with Tom um, in that I think America's friends have actually always had a pretty rich appreciation for how close run a thing it is for the United States to behave as a responsible hegemon. And while it's tr I agree with Tom's judgment that uh, Trump is a very different kind of challenge. The comparison it feels to me um, is when the United States rejected the League of Nations at the end of World War I. 
right? Something that uh, we had been so involved in the creation of, and then an American president can't deliver an American public. And, and I think the long shadow of the 1930s and developments in Europe that historian, uh, economic historian Adam Tews uh, places a lot of the blame on the United States for opting out. I think you could see a parallel to that uh, condemnation if the United States reelects President Trump. But I do think short of that, this situation is more recoverable than I think Tom judges uh, for three reasons. First, because as I said, America's friends have a rich appreciation for that that we're not newly a country full of crazy people run by reckless politicians, but that that's very often the case in the United States. The second thing is that um, I do think there are so many easy pickups uh, that that America's friends are going to want to rush into the comfort of believing that the United States lost its mind for a moment, watched what President Trump did to our country and the world, and and got scared straight. So I think we will get more credit than we deserve if President Trump is not reelected. And the third thing is that, you know, the only safe repository for power, as Jefferson taught us, is the American public themselves. Um, and I do, I do have the sense that there is a, a repudiation of the president because the way he has handled the pandemic, while not different from his approach to other problems, is a problem of such enormous magnitude that it's bringing into sharp relief for the American public just how much barring competence is a good thing in our government. And the judgment in 2016 that everybody's corrupt, uh, doesn't make any difference, let's blow the whole thing up, is actually now having very dramatic and damaging consequences for American families. Interesting. Interesting. By the way, I kind of like the analogy between Trump and Woodrow Wilson, although no, no one in the past would have made an analogy between you know this baboon and and the former president of Princeton but on the other hand as we look at it today uh in the context that you've just talked about it you have two neurologically damaged racists with really really bad attorney generals um uh, uh who have ties to New Jersey so you know i think there's a very strong <laughs> oh david that was such an elegant riff um <laughs> can i can i say just one emendation what Corey said, which is, I think she's right. If the defeat of Trump is a is decisive and it's an accompanied with a decisive defeat of a lot of the sitting Republicans, if it's a very close election and a lot of the incumbent Republicans are sticking around and suddenly, you know, in six months, Tom Cotton is leading the way for the Republican nomination, then I, I think that that reconstruction effort is going to be a lot harder to sell overseas. Okay. Ed, what's your take on this? Um, you know, I, 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 would, I would agree with what, what um, with elements of what both Tom and, and Corey have said, with most elements of what they both said. But let me just say this. this 
you know, there's always been in foreigners' views of America, uh, in addition to the sort of more benign, the sort of Hollywood uh, allure and glitz of America, um, and the sort of immigrants' hunger, um, or emigrants from where you're from where you're looking at America, there's always been the consciousness of the ugly American, um, of the chess beating with the greatest, um, most loudly from those who are the most ignorant about the rest of the world, of the sort of brashness and arrogance and the idea that America has nothing to learn from anybody, and that that that's always been either you know a prejudice or sometimes an accurate observation of a facet of America's character that's not suddenly sprung to life in the last three and a half years. Never before has it been quite so personified or anywhere close to being personified in the, the person of the commander-in-chief. And that, of course, is new. Um, but I do think there is a tendency to a little bit romanticize what the world was like before Trump. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the term... I've, I sort of grapple with whether to ever use the term liberal international order order again, LIO, as people shorten it to in academia, because I feel that um, it, it, it idealizes um, a world that was a lot more messy and contingent, you know, that, that included the Vietnam War. It included the misresponse to 9-11. It included all kinds of stuff that we wouldn't want when we rebuild the, the LIO, um, if indeed, you know, Biden is elected, and that is the goal. Um, so I think the world's messier. But by the same token, the sort of revulsion of and laughter at Trump is accompanied by fairly high levels of continued affection for America. People are able to differentiate between the ugly American and the America that, that they like and have always liked, or at least most cultures around the world have liked, which is the pragmatism, the common sense, um, the welcomingness, the hospitality, the um, sort of universal cultural appeal that um, um, that, that um, American culture c at its best can represent. So, you know, I, I'm just a little suspicious of some of the sort of neat divisions between uh, pre-Trump and Trump. I think I think America's always had a fairly cognitively dissonant view of the United States. Um, and um, it remains so um, under Trump. You know, it's it's interesting as you were saying it because I was thinking of that image of America and what the image was as we sort of went and sold it to the world. And you know, the the the, the idea of America standing tall, being the the you know the the good guy, having values, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is is embodied you know perfectly, perhaps in a movie like you know High Noon. Um, and yet High Noon was written in part as a commentary on McCarthyism and, and, and what was going on with the blacklisting in Hollywood at the time. And so, you know, you have in some of these images the dark corners that inform them. And I think that's, you know, I, I, I hear that in your comment. You know, I wasn't going to go here, but, but, you know, we've got whatever, 10, 15 minutes here left to go. Um, and I'd like to ask you each a question um, because it comes up again and again and again, but nobody's putting any meat on the bones. People say, if Donald Trump, you, you said it, Tom, if Donald Trump is reelected, oh my God, what a catastrophe. If Donald Trump is reelected, name three or four things you think will happen 
that will be worse than what we have had happen over the past year, a couple of years? Well, I think um, for one thing, the um, rule of law in the United States, which is already under assault, will start to visibly collapse. I think the president with his attorney general will start shutting down unfriendly publications, jailing critics, um, making sure that cases that challenge him are steered to uh, courts that are friendly to him. Do, do you um, think you and Corey will go to never Trumper internment camps? Well, uh, you know, they're um, the never Trumper guys are already saving me a bunk at Gitmo. Um, but I, I mean, I, you know, we laugh about it, but I think there is genuinely that danger um, that, you know, the, the Department of Homeland Security, others, it, not just because of Trump, because I think it's always important to point out that Trump really doesn't have much of an idea what's going on. But there's a whole class of enablers and conspirators around him at this point who are never going to want to be found out, who will never want certain things declassified or, or FOIA'd or revealed. And um, I think that, you know, with nothing to lose in their second term, with no electoral constraint, um, they will um, start protecting themselves from the consequences of their actions. I, I don't think Trump, Trump, I think, has has literally taken leave of his senses. I don't think he knows most of what goes on around him uh, at this point. And so you're going to have the government basically in the hands of people like William Barr, um, which I think is actually more terrifying than having it in the hands of Donald Trump. And um, and I and I think that all of the things we're seeing now that are barely held in check by kind of the sunlight of by the disinfectant of sunlight and by the courts, um, you know, they will speed up by the by the end of two or three years, you will essentially have an entire Trump judiciary. Uh, and I think that you know D- uh, David Frum has warned about this when he talks about that you know the the eventual end state will begin through the courts. And so um, the foreign policy ramifications, I can't even begin to think about because I think our, if Trump is reelected, all of the people, all this discussion that we've all had, the kind of things Ed raises about this residual affection that I think is all true, um, that a lot of that will go away and both our opponents and our friends will be shocked that we were capable of doing this twice. And then I, I think things on the international scene will start to move in, in several directions. I think our allies will decide that they have to start making their own arrangements and deals. Our opponents will believe that the candy store is open and they can start really testing um, you know, what they can get away with. I, I mean, it's, it, there are just so many unimaginably bad things that could happen. But the biggest one that I'm worried about is that effect, effectively William Barr becomes an uncheckable interior minister in, a, in some kind of banana republic or, you know, mid-1960s Eastern European satrapy and uh, starts pretty much doing whatever he wants even more than he already is. That, that really scares me. Doesn't it scare you that Trump will do a five o'clock press conference every day for four years and you'll have to be the guy interpreting it for the Twitterverse as you do now? You know, if he gets if he gets reelected, I, I'm going to have to quit that because I the only reason I want him on every day at five o'clock is because it costs him a few points every day to remind people that he's basically gone bye bye and taken, you know, taken leave of his senses. I just had a vision of Tom strapped into a chair at Guantanamo uh, with his eye eyelids held open, a la that terrible scene from the movie Clockwork Orange, watching wow. presidential press conferences. Over and over while they, again. While they play Led Zeppelin. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's Tom doesn't so like that. And feed I, him nonstop Indian food. Go on, Corey. Um, 
I agree with everything Tom just said. And I do think the domestic ramifications um, are the more important ones because the international ones are derivative. Um, but uh, just to try and not be the poor man's Tom Nichols, I'll suggest three that I think are particularly worrisome. Uh, the first is I think that the shot across the bow of Germany that the president fired by uh, with no consultation uh, or concern for its strategic implications, the drawdown of troops in Germany. I think you will see that uh, all over Europe, Japan, and South Korea. So the United States will go from being a global power to being uh, North America um, with the concomitant um, changes and more assertiveness of strong regional powers and the, the requirements of complicity or requirements of, uh, cons of compliance by lesser regional powers. A second thing I think you will see is the corrosion of, of domestic political institutions, in particular, the, um, the United States military becoming a tool of presidential power rather than a professional institution that considers itself principally beholden to its commitments in the Constitution and one that sees Congress as, as civilian oversight in addition to the president. I think all of that goes away because the president gets the military leadership he deserves because he gets to pick them. Um, and if General Milley thought in July of 2020, after, I don't know, 35 or 40 years as a professional soldier, that, that it was okay for him to accompany the president through Lafayette Square in combat fatigues. That tells me that, uh, that we have a military that is, that if the president picks the right people, he can actually do enormous damage to the professionalism and subordination to the rule of law of the military itself. And the third uh, foreign policy consequence is that when you choose military leaders for their, your comfort or compliance, they tend not to be people who are uh, the top performers in the profession. So you see the authoritarian dynamic kick in where the president is likely to get more belligerent to provoke and then lose wars because we won't have a military that is professional and focused on uh, protecting and advancing America's security. So we become a Latin American military of the 1970s. Um, and those are my three nightmares to add on to Tom's sled of Christmas presents. Um, yeah, well, and, you know, I, one of the things I was going to talk about, and we don't really have time here because uh, I do want to get to Ed's point, was the um, decision to 
force this uh, General Tata fellow into a slot at the Pentagon uh, policy shop after it became apparent that he could not be confirmed by the Senate as the undersecretary um, for good that reason. That is such an outrage that Congress should refuse to vote on the defense spending bills until uh, Secretary Esper and the White House concede that somebody that the Senate has declined to confirm could actually perform those functions anyway. Yeah, but it, it it speaks to everything that both of you were speaking about, you know, the decline of the rule of law, of congressional oversight, of the quality of the people around him, of the way that the Defense Department works and so forth. And it's happened this week, right? It's happening right now. Ed. So I, I would not underestimate the potential for American breakdown if Trump is reelected, because he's not going to be reelected by winning the popular vote. He would be reelected by winning the Electoral College. Um, I don't think there's any realistic scenario in which he wins the popular vote. Um, and I would not underestimate the degree to which the majority of American people who voted against him reject the legitimacy of this outcome. It would have taken place, no doubt, with extreme um, chilling effect in terms of um, mail-in voting and absentee balloting and fewer polling stations in areas of higher minority population and so forth. It will have uh, taken place um, in an atmosphere of deep suspicion of the fairness of the process. And if in spite of having lost the popular vote, he then goes on to to take the, the presidency, knowing what what after the first four years would happen to democracy in the next four, people would know that 2024 would not be a free and fair presidential election when Donald Jr. or Ivanka or whoever it might be is the nominee. Um, I would not underestimate America's rejection of this. Um, I would not be surprised to see uh, blue America suddenly embrace the Second Amendment. I would not be surprised to see secessionist talk. Um, I think this is a more brittle situation um, than we imagine, um, than just a sort of continuity of this downward slope that we've seen um, in the first three, four years. I think this would be a break in the Republic. Um, and, you know, I don't think history repeats itself. I don't think we'd get a conventional sort of armed forces civil war in the United States. But I think we would get mass civil disobedience. I think we would get some violence. And I think we would get, uh, as as Corey just mentioned, a Latin Americanization in terms of the response of the state. And Tom was right. Bill Barr is the interior, the interior secretary, interior minister. Um, and not exactly Sendera Luminoso kind of, you know, Maoist rebellions, but resistance in, in more than just a sort of rhetorical sense. To, to, to a Trump second term. In terms of America's place in the world, I've no doubt he would, um, you know, he would, he would continue to pull out of the rest of the world. NATO would be over. The WTO, it's already kind of over, but it would be really formally over. Um, and globalism um, and the global architecture would, would, would collapse. Um, and China would fill the void and Russia would fill the void. Um, Europe, it would be hard to predict. This might be a kind of forcing event where it would actually cohere and you would suddenly see uh, actual real spending levels on defense in Germany and, and Italy and places go up. 
um, or you could see it just being picked off and um, uh, and disintegrating. It's it's hard to it's hard to predict the knock-on geopolitical effects across the Atlantic, but I think it's very easy to foresee something far more dramatic at the beginning of a second Trump term in terms of America's reaction, the majority of Americans who don't want Trump. Um, than um, than some people might be imagining. I think a lot of people I've spoken to recently say, well, people would just be sullen. I don't think they would be. I think they would be angry. Well, wow, uh, that's uh, precisely uh, the kind of thing that I hear people talking about in private conversations. I don't think it has been laid out there in the way that we've just laid it out there. I think all of you guys um, uh, make really powerful points, and I hope that you make an effort to lay this out there because I think it's really important to pe for people to understand that re-electing Donald Trump is is not just going to produce you know more of 2020 or 2019 or 2018. It's going to produce some new things, and they are going to have grievous consequences. Um, We've run out of time here, uh, unfortunately. Hopefully, uh, all of these folks will join us again soon. Uh, as has been the case the past couple of weeks, we are really loading up and doing more and more. Uh, last week, of course, you had Leanne Panetta, you had um, Mary Trump, and I, if you haven't listened to those episodes, you definitely should go back and, and do it. Uh, this week, we have a special episode tomorrow. Our friend Rosa Brooks uh, put together a number of, or was part of a group that put together a number of scenarios on how the elections can go off the track. Uh, it's gotten a lot of uh, press. Uh, so we've got several of the folks uh, who have been involved in those uh, uh, scenarios getting together tomorrow. I think Ed's going to join us again. Bill Crystal is going to um, join us. Larry Wilkerson is going to join us, some of the people who participated in them. And I think that's really, really important. You should listen to that. And on Wednesday, we're having a conversation uh, with a brilliant uh, writer, Kurt Anderson. He's a new book out called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. Recent history couldn't dovetail with this conversation any better. And of course, we'll have our regular Thursday look back at whatever has happened during the week on the COVID front or the legal front or some other front. Today, of course, we had the Manhattan District Attorney uh, uh, informing the court that they are looking at a pattern of criminal activity in the Trump Organization, which could be a somewhat bigger story by the time we get there. Uh, for all of this, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And while you're there, if you sign up, become a member, we'll appreciate it. You can get some of that great swag, including our highly coveted Deep State Radio masks. Um, and we look forward to having you back again. We look forward to having Tom and uh, Corey and Ed back again extremely soon. And in the interim, take good care of yourselves and uh, stay well, folks. Bye-bye.